If you have your Bibles, then you can turn to Isaiah chapter 5. I believe it's on page 569 in the Black Pew Bibles, if that's what you're using. And we can all turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. And at the end, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And as a whole church, as a congregation, we can say thanks be to God. So if you would rise with me as I read this passage of Scripture for us. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste that shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and an omer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled. And each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quake, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray together. Father, we come to you as a needy people. And as we hear a text like this, it is just hard upon our hearts. It's hard for us to process. It's hard for us to understand exactly what we ought to take away from a passage like this. And it is, in many ways, because of our sinful inclinations, even hard for us to hear about your righteousness and your judgment against sin. God, I pray that you would help us to hear your truth in the appropriate and right proportions this morning. I pray and I plead with you that as we draw things out of your word, that you would minister to us and that you would apply the truths of your word to bear upon our lives so that we are able to live more faithfully unto you even this coming week. Father, we are your people, we belong to you, and therefore we should submit ourselves to the truths of your word, even the truths of your word in Isaiah 5. Father, will you please help us by your spirit for the honor of your great and marvelous son who is our redeemer and our king. Would you be with us here this morning? We thank you for this time, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin our time on a little bit of a lighter note by talking about a love song. Now listen, when I talk about music, I'm out of my element. When I talk about poetry, I'm out of my element. And so when you combine those two things together, I'm entirely out of my element. But here we go. One of the most famous love songs of recent times is Whitney Houston's 
I will always love you. It topped the charts in the early 1990s, and many of you are probably even hearing the tune in your mind right now. It was the number one song in the UK for 10 weeks and the number one song in the US for 14 weeks. It was the best-selling single in Britain in 1992, and it was the best-selling single in the US in 1993. And even up until this day, it is one of the top five best-selling singles of all time. And it was introduced to the world because Houston sang a rendition of it in the 1992 film The Bodyguard featuring Kevin Costner. Now, an interesting detail behind the story of this song is that it had already been a big hit some 20 years prior. Because 20 years before Whitney Houston sang the song, the song was actually written and sung by the well-known country singer Dolly Parton. Now, listen, Dolly Parton wrote this song not for her lover, as most love songs are, but it was written for her former boss. Dolly Parton was brought on to co-host a popular TV show with Porter Wagner, and Porter Wagner would sort of take a mentor role in Dolly Parton's life. But you probably know Dolly Parton, and you probably don't know Porter Wagner, which means that Dolly Parton was just better. She was more talented, and so her talents and her abilities eclipsed those of her mentor. And so eventually, she wanted to leave, he wanted her to stay, and she obviously felt the tension of all of that. And after seven years of Dolly Parton working for Porter Wagner, she finally decided to leave. And as many musicians do, she wrote a song to express what was going on in her heart as she departed from Porter Wagner. And then when Dolly Parton sang the song to her former boss, at the end of it, she, or sorry, he, with tears in his eyes, said, that is the prettiest song I ever heard. And she said, I wrote that song to say, here's how I feel. I will always love you but I have to go. A somewhat unconventional love song. The parting not of two lovers, but the parting of a woman and her boss. And in our passage, against the backdrop of judgment, in the midst of talking about impending doom for the nation, Isaiah also wants to sing. And he too wants to sing an unconventional love song, to express to God's people the things which were upon his heart. Isaiah wants to sing a love song about his beloved. Isaiah wants to sing a love song about his beloved's vineyard. If you're taking notes with me this morning, then you can just jot down verses 1 through 7, a love song about a vineyard. Look with me to verse 1. This vineyard was adequately taken care of. It was abundantly provided for. To put it into kind of modern vernacular, it was a spoiled vineyard. It was a pampered vineyard. The the vineyard owner found the best and most fertile land. He cleared the land of rocks so that the vines could take root and prosper. He found the choicest vines, the best seeds, The the owner of the vineyard built a watchtower to watch out for oncoming enemies. And he built a wall around his vineyard to protect it from those same enemies. 
And then he also cut a vat or a container. And the reason why he did that was because he, wa- he, pr- he expected there to be grapes. And from those grapes, there could be wine produced. And so he expected a great harvest. Nothing was left undone for the vineyard of Yahweh. Yahweh left nothing out. He was extremely generous towards the vineyard. Nothing was left undone. No stone was left unturned. Everything was done for the fruitfulness and the productivity of this vineyard. But again, look with me to verse 2. Something is the matter with this vineyard. Because as Yahweh, or as the vineyard owner, looked out upon his vineyard, and he expected tons and tons of grapes, Uh, Tons and tons of good fruit. Behold, all he saw were sour grapes. All he saw were wild grapes. All he saw was useless grapes. Something was wrong with this vineyard. And in verse 7, Isaiah provides for us an interpretation of this song or of this parable. And he tells us that the vineyard actually represents the people of God. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And the fruit of this nation, it's not talking about literal fruit, but it's talking about moral or spiritual fruit. And so as Yahweh looked out upon the nation, he expected to see justice, but behold, injustice. And he expected to see righteousness amongst this people, but behold, the cries of the oppressed. The question becomes, my friends, what went wrong? Or to put it slightly differently, who who is to blame here? Who is at fault? Because, Because maybe, maybe Israel could say, well, it's the vineyard owner's fault. Well, he neglected the vineyard. And allowed it to become overgrown, just like you would see an abandoned plot of land, overgrown with dandelions. Maybe the owner neglected and abandoned the vineyard. Or or, or perhaps the the hired workers that, that he sent to work on the vineyard were incompetent and unskilled. And so again, it's the vineyard owner's fault. Or or maybe the the vineyard owner was chintzy and cheap, and so he didn't provide the adequate protection and the provision for the vineyard. Maybe the reason why the vineyard is not producing fruit is because of the owner. So again, what has gone wrong? Who is at fault? And Isaiah wants you to draw the conclusion, and for that, look with me to verse 3. He says, And now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? God says with a broken heart and with a holy frustration that there is nothing more that he could have done for Israel. He has done everything that was required for Israel to be fruitful as a nation. He has held nothing back in terms of generosity towards the chosen people. And yet they have failed miserably. The takeaway for us then is that the fault today of Israel and the fault today of the church, of our sins and of our unrighteousness lies not with God but with us. The ultimate explanation for our sin is not in the cold-heartedness of God towards us, but in the depraved condition of our hearts. God has spared no good thing from his people. That was true for Israel. 
And that is true today for us as a church. So that's the love song about the vineyard. And the rest of the chapter is really going to just kind of elaborate upon and explain the bad fruit that Israel has produced. Okay? So verses 1 through 7, a love song of the vineyard. And then verses 8 through 30, the sour grapes of the vineyard or the bad fruit of the vineyard. And if you're a person who kind of needs a bit of a breakdown to hang your thoughts on, there are two sort of subsections in 8 through 30, okay? And those are 8 through 17 and then 18 through 30, okay? And there's a series of woes and there's two therefores and then there's another series of woes and there's two therefores. And so if you're taking notes again, you can just call it verses 8 through 17, woe therefore number one. So woe therefore number one. And this begins in verse 8. And Yahweh pronounces a woe against the greedy, against the materialist. And then he goes on to pronounce a woe against the drunkard or against the hedonist. And look at this, okay? Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. There were people within the nation of Israel, these were likely wealthy men, who just kept acquiring house after house, land after land, field after field. And he would just acquire these things, and he would just amass these things, and accumulate these things, and hoard these things. And you might say, well, what is wrong with having a bit of extra land and an extra house? Well, what was wrong with this is, one, that he was driven by greed and materialism, but also that this went against the Old Testament law that the land that belonged to the families and to the tribes would remain within the family and the tribes. So I'm not going to connect all of those dots, but just simply put, these wealthy and greedy people were going against God's law and his standards for how they were to handle these land transactions. And, and then it says that this, these, these men, or this singular man, would end up alone in the land. And that sounds like it's a pronouncement of judgment, but it's actually just the reality that when you accumulate house after house after house, and when you accumulate land after land after land, that eventually your property is so large that you're the only one standing in it. You're alone on your massive property while others around you are floundering, materially speaking. Woe against the greedy. Second... There's a woe against the lovers of pleasure. We see that in verses 11 through 12, and just kind of put this in the modern vernacular. Those who wake up early to devour the vodka, those who stay up late to guzzle the Merlot, these people party and live it up, and their appetite and desires knows no bounds. Okay? And because of their love for property, and because of their love for pleasure, which has entirely displaced their love for God, they will be appropriately judged. I, I just want you to understand this, that there's nothing wrong with owning a few things, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying you know, a glass of wine or something like that. What is the matter with these people is they have completely disregarded the word of God and they have completely allowed their love for property, for possessions, and for pleasure to displace their love for the Holy One of Israel. They love pleasure more than they love God and as a result, God is going to bring judgment upon them. 
I just want you to see the reverse of this judgment as well. The ironies of what's taking place here. And you can kind of um, see this for yourself in the text kind of in more detail, but let me just kind of summarize these for us. That those who have worked so hard to acquire much land are going to end up going into exile in a foreign land. That those who spend their days quenching their thirst with alcohol are going to end up parched with thirst in the end. And those who had an insatiable appetite for property and for pleasure will be consumed by the wide open mouth of Sheol in the end. The punishment fits the crime. The people are receiving what they deserve. God has done everything that was necessary for Israel to, be, to succeed and be fruitful, but Israel threw that generosity back in God's face and said, thank you, but we will go our own way and do our own thing. This is the situation. So you tell me, it's a rhetorical question, but who is at fault here? You tell me who is in the wrong here. You tell me whether this judgment of God is warranted or not. Let me just return to the reality of the love song just for a moment. Usually when we hear of the love of God in the Bible, we think, okay, well, maybe God's talking to us about his love to comfort us, to soothe us in our souls. Or or, or maybe God is talking to us about his love for us because he wants us to know that even when we fail miserably and badly, that there is still hope because he is faithful to us, even in our unfaithfulness. And both those things are true. But the reason why God brings up his love here in this portion of Isaiah is to do two things. Number one, it's to prove to you that when God judges his own people, that it is entirely warranted and justified and necessary. And second, God brings up his love, that he has done everything for us, he has done everything for Israel, and yet we still at times fail him miserably. He brings up his love to show to us and to demonstrate us to us the heinousness of our sins. And we'll get there at the very end of our sermon. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But that's why he brings up this love song Isaiah does. That's woe therefore number one. Woe therefore number two is found in verses 18 through 30. And we'll move through the woes a little bit more quickly and spend a bit more time in the judgment section. But let's look at this together again. Remember that Yahweh is, on the one hand, angry towards the people's sin, and on the other hand, brokenhearted over their depravity. He loves his people, and to see them in this condition breaks his heart, but because he is a holy and righteous God, he must judge them for those very same sins. He is brokenhearted, and he is ferocious in his wrath all at the same time. Verse 18, Woe to those who are enslaved to sin and who disbelieve his word. And, and, and the idea here is that if you think of like an animal pulling a cart and there's kind of like ropes or cords that attach the animal to the cart, then what it's saying is that the cart is full of iniquity and then the ropes are made of sin. And so the people are like oxen who are tied to a heavy cart by their sin. The people are enslaved to their sin. They love their sin. They are um, chained and shackled to their strong lusts and desires. And then when it comes to the word of God, verse 19, rather than receiving the word and placing themselves under the word's authority, they mock the word. 
They, they, they don't place themselves in, in, in under its authority. They place themselves above it in judgment. And because they do that, they neglect, ignore, overlook, and deny the word of God. They silence it. The word of God has no place in the hearers of Israel, or uh, the hearers of Isaiah. Then verse 20, woe to those who invert reality. Verse 21, woe to those who exalt themselves in their own wisdom. And verse 22, woe to those who champion sin and who pervert justice. You just have to understand the historical situation here. God has called out his people from slavery in Egypt. He has saved them from oppression and from tyranny. And he has brought them out to be a nation unto himself. And he has established them as his covenant people. He has given them the promised land. He has given them a priesthood. He has given them kings and rulers who would rule over them on God's behalf. He has given them a law. And God has treated Israel like no other nation upon the face of planet earth. And God has been loving towards them. He has provided for them for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And for most of Israel's history, they have been unfaithful to their God. So the question is, how will God respond to all of this? That's a massive question. It's a massive question for the Christian and for the non-Christian. For the religious person and for the non-religious person. For those who have been faithful to God and for those who have been wavering or struggling in their Faith. When God's people sin relentlessly over and over again and do not return to Him even after time and time and time and chance after chance after chance, what will God do? For instance, will God excuse the sins of His people? After all, Israel does have a hard past. They came out of slavery and they're bullied by the nations surrounding them. Maybe God will excuse them. Or, or, or maybe God will overlook the sins of his people. That because God is gracious and he is kind and these are his children, he, he can just kind of overlook their sins. He can just kind of sweep it under the rug and just kind of forget about it. Maybe they deserve a little bit of special treatment. Or does God respond with indifference and frustration, just throw his hands up in the air and say, you know what, like, whatever. Israel will be Israel, and I am just, I'm just fed up. I'm just going to kind of let them be. Or does God progress with the times? Israel has been in a season of prosperity and stability. It has made much progress financially, religiously, and morally, or so they think. And so who is God to curb such progress and resurrect such old-fashioned ways? We are approaching the year 722 for crying out loud. No, none of those things. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His righteousness is constant. His standards remain. He is the Holy One of Israel. He does not budge in his holiness even for his own children. This is the good word to rebellious Israel. And this is a good word to us today as a church. Isaiah makes it abundantly clear that because of the depravity and the sin of Israel, that because the covenant nation has not only rejected God's law, but they have despised and hated his word, his righteous anger is kindled and burns hot against their sin. I'm going to get to how this applies to us in just a moment, but let me just kind of 
explain a little bit, verses 26 through 30, and how this played out historically. Historically, Yahweh judged his own people by sending four nations to overpower and conquer them. The two most famous examples of this are through the nations of Assyria and Babylon who would come and judge and conquer the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And and look with me, when Yahweh summons the four nations in verse 26, ironically, they obey without delay. They are quick to do the bidding of Yahweh. They are effective at their task of bringing ruin to Israel. They are tenacious and unrelenting. And the people of Israel are pictured here as uh, the next meal of a ravenous lion who holds Israel in its mouth as its prey. And Israel is, again, to to use a different metaphor in the text, they're like a sailor lost at sea, looking for the shore, but only seeing darkness. And friends, I don't want us to forget this. And I want us to be reminded of this. That remember, Yahweh is Israel's husband. Yahweh is Israel's protector. Yahweh is the Lord of hosts, ready to do battle on behalf of his people. And he is the only one that can help them. And listen to this. This is scary. He is the very one bringing judgment upon the nation for their sins. And look with me to verse 29. And because of that, none can rescue. There are none who can help Israel in their sad and miserable state. And listen, I think that this is a vital takeaway for us. If you profess the name of Christ or you belong to this church in some way, and when you pursue sin with unrelenting abandon, and when you continually ignore and reject God's word and go your own way, and when you repeatedly prefer the pleasures of this world rather than the knowledge of God, and when, your life li- when you live your life along such a trajectory and you never repent and you never return, let me be very clear with you, there are none who can help you. This is a warning. That for those who unrelentingly trample upon the unrelenting covenant love of God, that the flames of hope are nearly extinguished for you. Earlier we were told that when Yahweh looked upon his vineyard and he expected a bountiful harvest of good grapes, behold, what he saw was wild grapes. And when Yahweh looked upon his people, he expected righteousness, but behold, cries of oppression. When Yahweh looked upon the nation of Israel, he expected justice, but behold, injustice. And now the tables have turned, and if you would look with me to the end of verse 30, when the people look out over the land and over their situation, behold, they see darkness and distress, and even the light is darkened by the clouds. God's word is true concerning our sin. Do you remember the words in the garden? The day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin is serious, 
Sin is destructive. Sin is devastating. And for those who would cling to their sin, it renders them helpless and hopeless before the Holy One of Israel. That's sort of where the text leaves us. It's bleak. It's sobering. It ends on a note of darkness and lostness. And, there is a re- and, and Israel is on the cusp of being kicked out of the land. And there's a real question, is, is God done with his covenant people? Have God's people overstayed their welcome and out the grace and mercy of God? The rest of Isaiah is going to resolve some of those tensions for us, and so we can be looking forward to that in our series in Isaiah. But, but I want to try and bring all of this to a close and all of this together for us as the new covenant people of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as New Testament believers, because I want to bring this passage to bear and I want to bring this sermon to a close because that would just be a, a bad way to end, wouldn't it be, just on that note. So, this is, so it's a bit different than how I normally preach, but I'm just going to provide a few concluding takeaways for us at the conclusion of our sermon. The Puritans would do this and they would call this the uses of doctrine. So I want us to use the passage for our spiritual benefit and for God's glory. So just three concluding takeaways for us. Number one, when you sin as a Christian, you are disregarding God's covenant love for you. Christian, God has done everything and more for us. He has sent his son so that our sins can be cleansed. He has crucified his son upon the cross so that our sins can be canceled and so that we can be set free from its power. He has sent us his spirit so that we can be enabled and empowered to bear the fruit that God desires for us to bear. He has given us his word to guide us and to instruct us and to give us light in an otherwise dark world. And he has given us his people to come alongside of us and to encourage us and to do life with us. So, So listen, when we sin... And when we fail, yes, of course, God will be gracious to forgive. But let's not be so quick to excuse and justify our sin. Because when we sin, it's not just a matter of morality or transgression. It's not just that we've crossed the line or broken a rule. We are forgetting and disregarding God's covenant love, which is meant to bear fruit and holiness in our lives. When we sin, when we transgress God's commandments, we are not just breaking a rule. We are breaking the heart of God who has loved us from all eternity and hence sent his son for our salvation and for our good. We are rebelling against love. God is not a heavy-handed dictator waiting to whack us the moment that we fail. No, God is a loving God who has provided us with everything so that we can prosper and flourish in the way that he meant for us to prosper and flourish. Second, when the Bible speaks about judgment, it should humble us and drive us back to God. One of the deceitful things about sin is that at the very first, it will lead us to rebel against God. 
One of the things about sin is that it will lead us to rebel against God. And then when we rebel against him and we hear of his judgment, as a result, we become fearful of God. But sin doesn't stop working the moment we rebel. Sin continues to work and it drives us to hide from God and run away from him. So sin on the first leads us to rebel, and then second, it leads us to hide and to cower and run away from God. Sin's ultimate purpose is not just to render us guilty, but actually drive us away from the living God. I want you to know that for Israel at this juncture, and for us right now, before the final judgment, there is still time. The word of judgment is not the final word. It, was, it wasn't for Israel, and it is not for us today here as you sit here in this auditorium. The, the, in fact, when God brings these judgments upon the nation of Israel, the whole point, the entire purpose was so that they would confess their sin and return to him, that they would humble themselves and lie prostrate before him. And if you look at Leviticus 26, God lays out that when you rebel against me and when you turn away from my commandments, these are the curses that I'm going to bring upon you. But there's a caveat that if if the people of Israel would confess their sin and they would make amends for their wrongdoings and they would return to God, then God would remember his covenant that he made with Abraham. I want you to know, my friends, that the only safe place in all the universe is to be broken, humble, and repentant before the judge of all the earth. And I want you to know also that for those who would humble themselves before this holy judge, that you will be met not with a whack and not with what you deserve in justice, but rather with great mercy and great grace unimaginable and unthinkable to mere mortals like us. You will be met with the grace of the Redeemer. You will be met with the warm embrace of the Heavenly Father. And you will be met with the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. So please, I beg you, I plead with you, as you have heard about judgment, that you would return while there is still time and humble yourself and lie prostrate before the judge of all the earth. The warning of judgment should drive us back to and not away from God. I want to end here. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21. The ultimate way that you and I can apply this parable, or sorry, this chapter in Isaiah, the ultimate way that we can take home this this concept about the vineyard and the reality of coming judgment is to receive the Son of God and to bear the fruit that comes from abiding in Him. The way that you can apply this passage, the way that you can apply this sermon is that if you are here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is that you can receive the Son that you can receive Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and as your treasure even today. And if you are a believer, then the way that you can apply this parable is that you can abide in the Son of God so that you can bear the fruit that God intends for you to bear. Let me read Matthew 21, 33 through 44, 
And I would just like for you mentally to note the connections to the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. Here another parable. There is a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, to the tenants, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, surely. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will be done to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let, out the, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The way to apply Isaiah chapter 5, the way to apply the parable of the vineyard is that first and foremost that you would receive Christ, that you would receive him as the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And second, that we would abide in him and that we would remain in him and that we would allow his word to remain and abide in us so that we might bear fruit that he intends for us to bear. Let us pray together. Father, we're grateful for this time together this morning. And Father, I, I think in our own flesh and even in our cultural preferences, we don't want to talk about judgment um, but it's good for us to hear from you. It's good for us to consider all aspects and parts of your word. And so, God, I don't know how a sermon like this might bear fruit in the life of a congregation such as ours, but I pray and I plead with you that by your spirit that you would take the things that we have considered this morning, that you would take my words and you would take your word, really, that's being expounded upon by me. I pray that you would take those things and cause it to bear fruit in our personal lives before you and in our corporate life as Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Father, thank you so much for loving us in Jesus, and I pray that even as we partake of the table right now, that you would be honored as we treasure the gospel together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.